Hello, all four of you that are watching right now. Welcome to uh, a live round the rotary with me, JP Warren, uh, your host. And uh, with us today, we have one of my best friends in the world. I think we just define universe. That. Universe. Um, forgive me, uh, Mr. Jason Churchill, CEO at uh, Petro Legacy. Did Great to see you. Did I pronounce that correct? Yeah, I actually did. All right, good. And um, I guess to get, uh, I guess to uh, get this kicked off, I want to say hello to Evelyn, my beautiful. 72-month-old daughter that's watching right now. Hello, honey. And um, I guess let's just kick this off. Uh, the purpose of this is kind of an inf I mean, we're in Austin. He, uh, Jason, took, thank you for taking the time out of your, uh, of your day to uh, meet with us and be on Round the Rotary. We actually did a previous uh, recording of Round the Rotary that we're going to launch. However, we just decided to, why not just do a live one, see where it goes, try to get some audience-generated uh, questions and discussion points. And we have a couple of uh, pretty good ones. And Stick around because we're going to be uh, doing a, a live Q&A. So if those that are in that want to ask us a question, go ahead and type that into the uh, little, little whatever you kids call it these days, and uh, we'll go from there. So, Jason, why don't you give us a little brief uh, background? Um, I'm, don't get too far into it because, again, on our uh, previous recorded podcast, uh, we, we discussed it. So why don't you uh, kick us off a little bit? Sure. Well, let me start by saying Thanks for doing this. Uh, it's kind of fun. Uh, as I said, this is a first for me, so I'm excited to sit down and just talk a little bit about what's going on. But about me, just real quickly, I've been in the industry for um, almost 20 years. I've worked, uh, started my career on the large public side working for ExxonMobil. Uh, spent about five years there, moved into a five-year term with XTO Energy, uh, so experienced on the large public side. Got into the private equity space um, a little over, well, almost 10 years ago, and uh, have been there ever since. So it's been a wild transition. We've seen a lot change. And so I'm excited to be here to talk about, you know, what that's been like and what we're seeing today. And, you know, from where I sit, what I see tomorrow is going to bring. So a lot of unknowns, but it's going to be fun to talk about it. It is an interesting time in our, uh, not just our industry, but the world in general right now. Yeah. But I think... We're obviously going to discuss the oil and gas industry as that's kind of what pertains to us and also to our viewers. So let's um, let's kind of dive into that. And again, this for those that are just tuning in right now, this is a very informal discussion. Um, it's going to be pretty much um, uh, just kind of uh, audience-generated uh, discussion points that we got previously and also a Q&A at the end. So we have a couple um, ones that were previously sent in. And the first one, um, to kind of kick us off, it's me, J.P. Warren, that came up, the VP of Sales and Marketing at Capital Petroleum Consultants, who provides well-site supervision and project engineering uh, work, Plug. podcast host, father, and husband. Um, you made a post uh, uh, yesterday or two days ago discussing that you're going to be on Round the Road. my first post ever. Was, was it really? LinkedIn. Very first. Okay, a lot of a lot of good yeah. positive feedback from that, and and you mentioned that you've been trying to do like many new things over the past ninety days. I guess that's when kind of uh, the floor fell out, yeah. and uh, the world stopped, yeah, pretty much. And you said that you've been doing many new things, a lot of first things. Um, do you want to? Can you provide us some examples about what new things that you've been doing, either professionally or personally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's a great question. Go on. Yeah, I'll start off with the personal because it's probably more fun and. Re relatable um but you know we've been in this for 90 days if you will um just say going back into march uh beginning of march and it just a lot of those first like they're not chosen um i've heard it said like you don't change and 
uh, there's two circumstances where you change when you want to and when you have to and those, these have all probably been have to's like um, you know on the personal level like raising kids in the middle of quarantine um, that's been just wild you know this all started like it was kind of the week of spring break for us mm-hmm. and it feels like spring break just never ended and this environment we're in right now where it, it's it's loosened up now but I mean a lot of y'all are probably in the same position where you've got kids from home you're uh, now trying to homeschool um, kids are out of homeschool now but trying to homeschool trying to get exercise trying to work at home um, you know just everybody's routines being being, being thrown out the window right. um, so it was kind of a first and I think one thing that I've I've definitely adapted to is you know growing up we're used to I was used to being told like, Hey, just go outside. Like you need to go get outside. Um, well, we kind of couldn't do that. Yeah. For like two months and you you had this dichotomy of wanting to get your kids out and, and, uh, tire them, get some energy out and get them off the screens because you want to monitor or manage screen time. What was like, there was nothing to do. So it was just kind of weird, like living that out. Um, of course we've found, found a little bit better balance with that now. So that was a first, um, I think another first for me, which is kind of cool, like I'm now uh, way into the stand-up desk. Um, I was uh, a late adopter, but uh, now I use a stand-up desk. I use it all the time. Uh, so if you haven't tried it, give it a try. But I found that just sitting uninterrupted for four or five hours, like I'm getting old now, and that just started to hurt my back. So uh, that's been an interesting first for me. Well, thank you for exposing that vulnerability because yeah. I think I think that was t- very brave of you to discuss that you're a late adapter at the stand-up desk yeah, I, was a, I was a late one and I was vocally against it um, for quite some time but it's it's actually been pretty nice so what about, prof- what about the professional side of things I mean what new things have uh, you kind of taken a leap at and uh, gotten into or, or tried well, and struck out you know, look our, our whole industry has uh, been thrown well we our whole lives have been thrown upside down but in our industry all of you tuning in you know can relate but just the first time i've ever uh intentionally shut down producing productive wells you know uh, the pricing pandemic um the fallout that occurred uh late april um you know coming into may the pricing just didn't compel us to continue to produce our barrels um, with the um, the strip or the curve in, in future pricing being more attractive than t- than than it was today, so to speak, um, just a first in my career. Like, how do you manage a a producing field, shutting it down and bringing it back online? Like, um, pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, that was an absolute first. And um, you know, I think uh, how we will manage our field going on from there will be. Um, that's that's going to be new. Like we're kind of writing the textbook on how to manage a crisis like this. And um, you mentioned something that we discussed before. It's having the, uh, the, the the profit mindset. Yeah. So I mean, we there's a lot to go in into there, but um, you know, I think that adapting from a mentality of of growth for the sake of growth, uh, growth because that that was um, the the best way to uh, add value. Uh, turning into an environment where we're focused on profit first. I like to just say profit first. Like every decision that we make has um, has to be made a little bit differently. And you know, there's some questions that have been submitted, and we can we'll talk a little bit that. more in, in depth. But that's been uh, uh, we're living out that ad- adaptation right now. Right. 
Right. And a couple questions that we just got right now. Uh, Chase Hanna uh, with Rosewood said, no coordinating wardrobe. That is from our – so Jason's been my Toga partner for the past seven years now. It's, Toga's mm-hmm. not around this year because of COVID and all that, but it's coming back uh, strong. We usually event. coordinate our outfits. Um, but, Chase, I was calling you last Friday to actually discuss that, but you didn't pick up, nor did you call me back. So couldn't tell you about this before it happened. The next one was from Ed Squirreljack. Are you all six feet apart? No. Not even – very close. Good question. Very, close. <laughs> Very strong question, Ed. Thank you. Um, the next one, uh, the next question we're going to kind of go into right now is from uh, Corey Parrott, uh, the Vice President of Operations at Broad Oak Energy. Yeah. He is a uh, longtime listener, first-time caller, as he said, and he said he's the number one fan of this um, of, of this podcast. So let's get into this. Way to this. go, Corey. Yeah, way to go, Corey. Yeah. Proud of you. Um, will the uh, private equity companies uh, that traditionally invest in uh, the E&P sector remain committed to doing so? Yeah, so I think that uh, just like on the operational side, um, we're seeing changes in in how companies manage um, the assets that they have and, and how they grow and, and go add value. Like the private equity space, the, the private equity uh, portfolio um, or fund, private equity funds, uh, they're they're adapting as well. And you know, you see some that are adapting well. Um, there's a lot of consolidation that's taking place. Right. Um, both within basins and in between basins, um, you know, reshuffling of the portfolios so that um, the assets can be put into a position to um, to be more profitable and, and have a longer runway. Uh, I think there's private equity uh, groups out there that will continue to stand behind the, the upstream EMP space. Um, NCAP, our partner, being being one of those, there's a lot of capital available to them. Um, yet to put to work. Um, they're continuing to see this as an environment where um, the assets that they have, they want to protect and continue to, to invest through the build, drill bit. So they'll be able to invest in that manner in ways that are more profitable than they were before. Um, and I think that new opportunities stand out there. I, I think it's early, like patience yeah. is the word I've yeah. heard from a lot of people um, you know, there are things to look at right now, but they're just not in the position where, um, you know, if they're over, over levered companies or there's debt situations, distress, uh, that takes time to work through. Uh, so I think it's kind of like back in 2008, uh, during the financial crisis, um, when in the housing market, when if you had run out and tried to buy those properties before they went through a, a, a process, um, you wouldn't have been able to to get your hands on them. E- even if you could, you would have paid a price that was above what um, it needed to transact at right. for value to be created from there. So, yeah, I think private equity will remain uh, committed to this space, but I think they, they adapt um, in the type of assets that that they're investing in how they will glean value out of those assets instead of uh, kind of a drill and flip model. Um, what, what I think the mentality that will be had and will be successful from here is when, when you acquire an asset, um, your plan is to, to own it uh, into per- perpetuity and not with the intent of, of exiting. You probably will get the chance to exit at some point, but the, the way you will create value is through de- developing that or maintaining that asset and spewing off cash flow. Versus the, just as you said, you know, punch a couple of holes in the ground, flip it. 
mm-hmm. or a three, four times, whatever the value is. We're definitely not in that environment anymore. And I don't think we have been in that environment s- since 2017, 2018. Yeah, that's about right. You know, it really started to shift in eight, beginning of 18, 19. It was that's what pre- I said, yeah. yeah pretty clear. Um, you know, institutional investors really began to claw back on the capital they were providing to public companies to grow and uh, add to their inventory, their asset base, um, and really were asking uh, the industry to shift to an environment where you could create profit and um, sustainable profit, um, lower growth rates, and provide uh, through dividends or or other manner um, returns back to those investors. So that's just trickled down, and I think what's happened in the next uh, that trickled down over 2019. Uh, the M&A market um, sort of began to fall apart. And then obviously with uh, what's happened in the last 90 days, like that that environment is super, super challenged. Um, there's no capital available for that old private equity model. Yeah. And so private equity has an opportunity. I believe private capital has an opportunity, um, almost generational type opportunity to create uh, value where you can, you can operate and you can prop create profit from from an asset or from create a business right right and then another question that he had was um how will the growing concern and stigma attached to climate change impact the uh, private equity model do you think i think it already has uh there are a couple i think quantum um they raised a small fund i think maybe half, half a billion dollars um just dedicated to technology um and, and they had made some investments uh back in 18 and 19 uh, more recently, NCAP themselves raised um, about, uh, I think it was $1.5 billion in a new fund uh, completely dedicated to renewables, um, wind, solar, and uh, natural gas with, you know, um, low-cost technology uh, battery power. And so um, I think that uh, you've seen the uh, private equity side of the business begin to uh, shape themselves for this new world. Uh, they haven't given up the um, approach or the, the upstream EMP investment right. um, uh, methodology, but uh, they've adapted and prepared themselves for the future. But look, with climate change, it's my belief, you know, um, it's here. It's, yeah. it's a real viewpoint that uh, is legitimate. And um, I think what we need to do, what I try to do is recognize that um, it's a it's a bit like a religion. Like I, I find that the conversations I've had where I try to challenge beliefs, uh, those are the most frustrating conversations for me and for anybody I'm talking to. It's like arguing your favorite color. Yeah, or yeah. arguing beliefs is, is like that's not a super productive um, conversation right. to have. And so I think um, what I've uh, learned has uh, to be more valuable is to try to understand those viewpoints, but then also educate a little bit uh, and talk a little bit about what what I'm doing um, to provide energy and uh, meet the world's energy needs uh, in an environment that's changing. Like renewables are uh, a fast-growing part of um, the supply of energy to the world, uh, still very small in comparison to fossil fuels, uh, you know, coal, uh, oil, uh, natural gas. Um, that's going to continue to change. But what I try to help some of those people understand is that the world does need energy. And as you take fossil fuels off the table, if that's the belief or the religion, like clean energy, right. um, 
it really has a drastic impact on the ability to provide uh, a lifestyle to people across the globe, particularly in third world countries where the cost of implementing some of the renewable um, energy supply um, doesn't compete with the uh, transmissib- you know, like the transportability of, of fossil fuels. It's just a, it's a, it's a lot more uh, cost effective up front in those developing countries. So you take that off the table and we stop providing that to the globe. Um, it has a very, I think, far reaching impact. impacts on, you know, medical uh, care, health care, um, um, uh, sustainability in harsh climates, you know, um, energy supply for um, climate control. Uh, it's not just about transportation no, and driving not. cars. It's, and that's the thing. You saw a lot of people on uh, when this happened, um, when uh, you know uh, oil kind of got kicked to the ground, or the oil and gas industry got kicked to the ground. Um, a lot of people were saying, you know, the the the, the masses and ninety five masks. I mean, eighty percent of that or something like that. Honestly, eighty percent of statistics are made up on the spot. But yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's a large. I mean, whether it's as you said, medical, every industry, and and there's so many products out there that people don't realize what hydrocarbons are in, and that's that's definitely a, a point that uh, that you're trying. And you and you and you talked about something before we got on about this thirteen to sixteen percent. Can you, oh you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring that um, up, please. I think it's interesting. And there's a great book. Um, many people have read it, but. Uh, Epstein's book, uh, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, like that's just a, a wildly um, transparent uh, read, I think, for anybody in the industry or anybody outside of it to start to understand and be able to have a conversation around this. And um, um, the, some of the, the facts that are thrown around in there, um, over the last 20 years, the, so if you go back to 2000, the uh, percentage of energy supplied by renewables, I think, was around 13%. Right. 20 years later, today, I, I read that that stands somewhere around um, 16 or 17%. So so in 20 years, it only, it, it, it only gained 3%, 4%. Of, of, the, of the global right. energy supply. Like, it grew substantially, but the amount of energy consumption, like, look, we're making more people every day. Right. Um, there are people demanding a, a better quality of life every day. So energy consumption is going up. The rate of increase is slowing because of renewables um, and because of technology. Um, but all that said, I mean, let's just say for argument's sake that over the next 20 years, it doubles. That would mean, if my math is right on the spot, um, in 2040, uh, renewables could supply 25% of the energy's consumption. Now, we'd have to go run some models, and um, or people have probably run those models to see like what the total energy consumption looks like 20 years from now. But all that to say, fossil fuels are a big part of providing um, energy to the world. And I think all forms, wind, solar, nuclear, or nuclear, whichever one you nuclear. choose. Nuclear. Um, hydro. Uh, th- those are all uh, resources that, that I think we need to tap into to be part of like a melting pot of decarbonizing right. our energy supply. Right. They all, they're all going to play a role. Okay. Um, Andrew Taylor uh, with uh, Callan um, uh, asked, uh, how do you keep your employees engaged in a down market? 
and yeah. whatever market, if you want to call this down, depressed, miserable, whatever market you want to call this right now, how do you keep your employees engaged? I mean, shoot, that's another first. That's a great question. Like, um, I'll, I'll admit to everybody the, the day that we realized we needed to send everybody home from the office and we were all going to work remotely. We'd never done that before. We had people, you know, from time to time, those, those hard, hard workers that are always plugged in, like they're set up at home, but we had a lot of people that had never worked from their house. Um, so I was, I had a lot of anxiety about it to be totally clear. But I was, I've been wildly surprised at how many resources are everybody knows zoom. Um, everybody knows slack, these tools that are out there. Um, but if you, we've embraced them now and, uh, we've tried different things that haven't worked, but, um, those tools, um, zoom and slack stick out really well. Um, we have different channels on slack that we've got a channel for remote work. We've got a channel for, uh, what are you eating tonight? Um, we've got different channels to just have conversations and, and sort of routinely engage with them. Um, but what I have found most effective personally is, um, if I'm driving down the street and someone pops into my mind, I call them yeah. and I talk to them. Um, I'll call up, uh, Stephen Seacrest, um, and just say, Hey, how you doing? Um, you know, he runs all of our, our subsurface and, um, he's a, he's a brilliant individual and uh, I love chatting with him. But over the last three months, uh, we just kind of lose that connectivity. So I find just reaching out to people and talking to them. And I'm, I, I love when people call me yeah. just, Hey, what's going on? We have routine meetings, but I, I like having one-on-one conversations to just engage with everybody. It's, it's easy to lose contact in this environment, but it's also really easy to engage with mm-hmm. people. It just takes that added step. I mean, in the mornings, you know, um, you know, I'll do these little walk and talks where I'll just, you know, put some headphones on, get my phone. And I'll just start calling random people. Um, and just talking to them and uh, just kind of seeing where they're at and kind of what they're feeling just kind of because you're not seeing these people anymore at breakfast runs, lunches, meetings or anything like that. So yeah. these little walk and talks have been beneficial, but not just engaged. Let's 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 get into that a little more. I mean, how do you keep your employees motivated during times like this? Well, I'm a big believer in transparency. Um, it's that's kind of our religion around here has been at times. And um, I go to the numbers. You know, when this first started, the day that the price war began between um, OPEC and and Russia, or the Saudis and Russia, I guess. Uh, The day that that started, we sat everybody down in this room, and I said, look, I don't know what this is going to turn into, but here's what it could turn into. And we talked really high level. We hadn't run any models or anything at that point, no financials, but we started to talk about the implications on our drilling program, the implications on our profitability, liquidity for the company, um, just very transparent. So I find, you know, you know, to Andrew's, Andrew's question is a great one. Like I find people get engaged when they have information and in the absence of information, they're left to their they come imagination. Up with, they come up with their own stuff. They're it's left like to their imagination. Anxiety. And that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree with that. Go on. If you're, if you're, no, no, I'll stop there. So transparency. So yeah, just transparency. be open and honest with your employees. So you just talked about OPEC and Russia. And interestingly enough, we have um, a question from uh, one of my buddies when I was working over in Saudi, Ahmed Al-Khadib, who's the VP of oil field division at Rawabi Holding Group. Um, mm-hmm. And this is kind of on a global scale. So he, uh, his question, he has two questions. How does the, f- how the future will look like if the uh, oil production and prices are hammered every time the U.S. 
starts producing and reaches 20 million dollars uh, 20 million uh, barrels of production per day which slashes the prices down and forces OPEC to react badly yeah that's a that's an interesting and, and broad I don't feel like these questions being asked, though. I mean, I think this is a great, great uh, outside, you know, set of I think it's a very real, like, real-time question. Yeah. Um, And to be clear, I I think it it may have meant 12 million barrels a day. Like, in March, I think we got to almost 13 million barrels a day before um, the the production started pulling back. People started curtailing, slowing down drilling. Um, And just to give everybody context— before going going back to like 2010 i think we were producing around five million barrels a day out of the out of this country and then technology technology changed that Um, we were able to drive um, production growth out of the u.s in a way that we haven't i haven't seen in my career so um to answer the question directly though um, i think that doing so america took away the control that opec had been able to exert uh for such a long time and, and took control of that i call it the, mar- the marginal barrel like providing the supply for that last bit of demand and then quite frankly finding that we're oversupplying it um and that's just the product of excess capital a lot of capital came into the environment because of the technology change of hydraulic fracturing, our ability to space these wells, co-develop, um, larger completions, just drive more and more productivity out of the wells. Um, because of the excess of capital, we really weren't um, sure that all those barrels were being provided profitably. Right. At $100 oil, that's one thing. At $50 oil, that's a completely different math problem. So um, it's my hypothesis that the U.S. will pull back. Um, and this is, I mean, this is not my hypothesis. This is what everybody's um, believing at this point. Um, we've pulled back on production. We've shut wells in. I think we lost 2 million barrels a day of production in May. So instead of 12, we were down at 10. Um, I haven't seen that. I'm not certain of that number, but that's kind of what I'm hearing. Um, I think what comes back now as wells get turned back on and duck wells start to come into the mix um, and, and brought online that we, we probably get back maybe 11 million barrels a day or some more, some more. But what we'll see is the amount of investment in the drill bit is gone. It's not what it was, and it, it will not come back to, to what it was. So going forward, uh, we'll see that uh, the profitable production available from, from U.S. shale will look different. Okay. Because of that, I don't think that we will be able to wildly oversupply uh, the market. The capital won't be there to do it. Uh, quite frankly, between... So it'll be kind of a self-check. It's a self-check. Right. Like, but, that, but that's the beauty of the open market um, and what I love about it. Um, I don't think that being part of OPEC is, A, a necessity, um, I think, for, for uh, the balance of supply and demand. Uh, but I think it will, will come out of the self-check of the open market. The and, capital. That, and that was kind of his second question. He goes, well, why not just join OPEC Plus and regulate in the production without joining OPEC, but follow kind of what Russia's doing, as this will keep the prices in check and maintain a healthy Whoa. industry environment? <laughs> yeah, I, I, quite frankly, I think that, that goes against the very foundation of, of having an open market, um, you know, and, and what, you know, our country is founded on 
Um, I think it takes away the some of the freedoms of of innovation. You know, look, innovation will come in our our in America's desire to find that balancing. There's going to be innovation uh, in a controlled market. You starve it. You you cannot have uh, control and innovation at the same time. I think that those two are generally speaking against each other mutually exclusive right so i'm very afraid of a controlled market uh because it takes away the the initiative to innovate try something new yeah so i i think that we'll get there um without having to become part of that cartel all right well that's good um good insight uh, the next question is from J.P. Warren, the uh, VP of Sales and Marketing at Capital Petroleum Consultants, um, Wellside Supervision and Project Engineering. Um, I want to hear what you have to say to uh, people in the oil field. I mean, we kind of broke this down before when we went over the questions. Um, what would you say to people in the oil field? You know, it, we ha- I had 15 to 20 year people out there, you know, 10 to 15, 5 to 10 and below 5. So pretty much kind of what would you, I mean, you, you put them into two kind of two brackets, but... Uh, what would you tell people? I guess you know, you know, seven plus years in the industry and uh, below, below that, or even actually even uh, within a year. Like, what would you? What what advice would you give out to the people? And would that advice be different for different groups? Yeah, I, I, I think it's where where you draw those lines. And in my head, where I draw the lines between the buckets. Are, look, I've been in the industry for almost twenty years now. Um, that's a good bit of time, but I can go back to a time that was pre-shale. Uh, before unconventional development. Not a whole lot of time, uh, but I had a small window there um, back in my drilling days with Exxon where I, I worked in an environment that was about um, every dollar mattered. Right. Um, and we were, in essence, the culture was required of us to, to look at every dollar we were spending and think, do I have to spend that dollar? Um, it's been... You know, look. I don't want to act like we don't protect our our capital um, in any way. But as we have gotten busier and busier over the last five, ten years, um, there's just a uh, a culture that has been lost um, in a curiosity that has been lost in digging into those details and really understanding what we're doing in the field and where the dollars are going. So um, I, I kind of draw that line where. Do, do you have experience in in this industry that is outside of, say, the last 15 years of unconventional shale development? Because the capital um, availability and, and the um, transactional structure of the of that time frame is very different from the 40 or 50 years before that. Is that fair? No, so that's I put fair. people in those two buckets. So I would say, you know, if if you're say five years in, um, and all you've known is is the environment that we just came out of. Um, I think that you have to go back and sit down and say, you know, what did I go to school for? Um, what have I been working on? What skills have I developed? Like, what's my plan from here? What do I want to accomplish? And um, I think that with that plan in place, you can begin to start chasing, um, you know, what that what does that goal look like? And that might mean. Um, you find some mentors that have, have been there and done that. Um, that might mean that you have to go uh, go stretch your network and meet some of those folks that have done what you want to do. Right. Uh, for those of us that um, 
have been in it for a little while. Um, I really think it's all about adaptation. Like it's time for us to adapt the way that we're, we're getting oil out of the ground, the way that we're getting oil to markets, uh, the way that we're uh, drilling and completing and investigate down to the steps within the processes to see are, are there things that we can change to, to take expenses off the table um, and make us more profitable? So that, that's a very, like, I think, broad brush approach, but I kind of see people in those two buckets. But also, I think, I think you're, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, everyone's talking about adapting right now. Everyone's talking about doing something new. And I think we've, we've beaten this down in the, over the past several podcasts. But it's not just as an operator or E&P uh, company. I think this actually resonates towards uh, service companies as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, what, what can you do differently? Because um, the environment that we were in, you know, 90-plus days ago is no longer. You know, right. especially being in sales. I mean, salespeople do, you know, breakfast runs, lunches, lunch and learns, meetings. You can't get inside a, a operator's office anymore. So it is being adapted. It's thinking how to kind of think outside the box and how do, how do I meet someone that I can't walk in their office and meet? Mm-hmm. How do I establish a relationship there? And that's just, you right, stretching your networks, utilizing your networks, and, and just trying to think differently. Um, one question we have here that Marty uh, Unrein, I guess, had to go into with Universal Pressure Pump and had to go into a, a meeting, um, also previous guest on Round the Rotary. Um, what should frat companies do to truly be a partner? What should they be focused on in the future to stay relevant? Well, I think um, that's, a, that's a really interesting question. You know, look, the well, the well cost has uh, changed dramatically um, over the last year, really. Um, frac prices have come down quite a lot. There's been a lot of pressure there. Um, I think it's tough on the service side. I think that uh, it doesn't do the industry benefit to just slash pricing. I think that we need to spend time on location together and understand through that full supply chain um, chemicals, fluid, propent, horsepower, and people, how do we restructure the way that we execute that operation? Because the the fundamental need is to stimulate the well. Um, and there needs to be um, a mechanism for people to um, create you know value and profit for themselves on the service side and the EMP side. So I can't say that I sit here and have an direct answer to that question, Marty. But what I do think is there's, there is value to be created in sitting down uh, together as partners and solving that problem as one. Okay. So, and that kind of segues into this. I know you kind of spoke to it already, but uh, a lot of people have kind of uh, messaged me and said, you know, how come uh, ask Jason why he's not using us uh, exclusively, or how come we, you know, how do we get on location, or did it all that? Um, so that being said, I think that's kind of a good question. I mean, um, does this new market change the way you look at service uh, providers? And if so, I mean, how and you know what will we be looking at moving forward? Yeah, I, I think that it it doesn't break the the relationship. It does change it though. Um, I think that there's so much focus right now on um, bottom line profit margin right. that um, we as operators we're starting there. And I think for someone looking to break into a new relationship, 
I think you have to differentiate yourself. And I think it, it's twofold. Like we as operators, we have to be looking for those solutions also because just doing what we have done um, that doesn't innovate. Um, we, don't, we don't create uh, more value by repeating what we've done. You can't go, you can't go raise capital either walking in, the, walking in the offices saying, oh, we're going to do the same thing we've been doing for you know, the past you know, five years. It's yeah. not going to work anymore. Yeah, so you know, one great example I, w- I would share is um, you know, on, the, on the production operations side of things, um, you know, we have you know, lease operations. We've got roustabout, water hauling. Uh, chemicals. There's a lot of a lot of line items that go into that. But um, recently, just through LinkedIn, I was uh, made a connection uh, with a group called Engage, and um, Kayla reached out to me. Um, she, uh, you know, more or less cold called me. But the the way that she introduced it was, uh, I think, um, very helpful because I was able to real quickly understand like what she was, what they were doing for other operators, and it really matched up because that was um, it's a technology approach that I was looking for. Um, I just had not yet found. And did you know you were looking for that, or was that I was just, actively looking okay. for it? So that that's why I'm kind of describing like it's a it's there's two sides to the coin. It's not just the service provider um, reaching out and trying to make that connection. We need to be looking for those connections. She found me before I found her. Right. Um, so hats off to her. But um, the way that she uh, introduced the Engage technology and what they were working on and, and attempting and having success with with other operators, I saw, okay, that has the potential to directly impact the bottom line. Um, we connected. We real quickly got into um, the, a Zoom meeting with the right people, and, and we're in the middle of implementing that tool. Um, there are other service providers out there that I know – we need to be talking to to um, approach what we're doing every day differently. Right, um, and that that will be true on the drilling and completion side when we get back to to that as well. So, um, Marty, I definitely think we should sit down. You know, you, me, and Cole, and we we should talk about how do we set up that next job to approach it differently and make it more profitable for both parties. I like that kind of like a brainstorming session. Yeah, totally. So that uh, woman that reached out to you is kind of how my wife and I met. She reached out to me before I could find her. You were looking for her, but she found you. Exactly. That's how it works. Um, <laughs> do you have any messages that you'd like to get, uh, provide uh, anyone that's, gonna, that's watching right now or watching, uh, I guess, in the future? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, what I would share is I think over-communication matters more than anything right now. And sometimes that's tough. That's tough for me. Um, that's not always my nature. But I think if if it comes into your mind to talk to somebody, pick up the phone. Yeah. Don't wait. Uh, don't let that thought fade because too many times I've called somebody and it's really been obvious to me that they've been looking to connect. Yeah. Um, so I would say over-communicate. Um, I would also say um, patience. Uh, I've heard that from... You know, the other EMP companies, public, private, that I've talked to, we, you know, being patient with working through this, this crisis um, so that we can come out of this crisis and solve it. I've heard it from the financial providers. I've heard it from the institutional investors. Like, this is going to take time. Yeah. Um, I would say through the worst parts of this crisis, um, when we were looking at the unfortunate um, situation of, you know, are we going to have to reduce our staff? Are we going to have to shut in wells? Um, 
are we going to be are, are we going to have our borrowing capacity redetermined and have to pay down debt uh, solving all this simultaneously uh, what I found is um, focus on what you can control yeah um, I summed it up like this for myself and for everybody I say like solve today's problems and then get ready for tomorrow because it's coming and you know it's coming, but you can't, so, you can't focus wa- on today. You can't waste your energy thinking about stuff that's out of your control. That's right. I mean, OPEC and Russia not coming. You can't focus on that because you have no impact or influence over that. We've so, got to control what's going on within our, within our business. Exactly. For sure. And I would just say, like, you know, with the, for the private equity world, mm-hmm. uh, people listening out there, if you're in it, uh, you're feeling it. Um, the or if you if you've been around it you're curious about it uh there will be uh, generational type opportunities come out of this but it will take time so that patience word like play it out all over the place Uh, yeah just as you said communicate because a lot of times you have in your mind to call someone or reach out to someone that usually the motivation fades yeah it does so just pick up the phone and do it right then and there or even text yeah that's i mean just Stay on people. Stay in front of people. Stay in people's minds. So, does anyone have any questions that they'd like to uh, like to type in um, currently? We'll just give this a couple minutes. See if any, anyone has anything to say. I guess in the we're dropping. We got nine. Okay. I guess in the uh, in the meantime, I'd like to uh, to to uh, plug uh, Capital Petroleum Consultants, who's the uh, the sponsor of this round the rotary and. Uh, uh, for any well site supervisions uh, that you may need, uh, whether drilling, completions, productions, or any uh, project engineer management, uh, feel free to reach out to me or go to our page, uh, capitalpetroleumconsultants.com. Um, I believe, unless, is anyone typing anything right now? Let's see if I missed anything. And, and we're going to wrap it up in five, four, Three. It's been good. It has been good. Jason, well, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your day uh, and we're, uh, for uh, doing this at your, at your office, in uh, Petro Legacy's office in Bee Cave. I appreciate it. And um, I hope you – thank you for everyone that joined us. Um, I see, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of good friends and uh, family joining us on this and uh, people mm-hmm. that I haven't seen. So we appreciate it, and um, thanks again. And uh, we hope uh, everyone has a good day and uh, stay safe, and, and that's it. Stay healthy. Stay healthy. Yep, end it.